Good morning. My name is Joe Hendricks, and we'll be leading you in reading the scripture today. And we'll be reading from Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 35. You can find that on the Pew Bible on page 829. Again, the, we'll be reading from Matthew chapter 24, 1 through 35. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left there here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be on, in the winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulations such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, never will be. And in those days, if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is. Do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. And if they say, look, he is in the, in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the, learn from the, or from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, 
you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And this is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Pray one more time. Jesus, thank you for your word. Uh, and we just heard 35 verses of some of the most complicated, maybe confusing, uh, maybe hopeful, maybe reorienting words uh, that we have recorded of what you spoke. Uh, so in these last days of your earthly ministry, as you're instructing your disciples, we ask that these words would instruct us. Would you help us to understand what you have for us? Would you give us a joyful willingness to listen to you? I pray for an open heart to the main idea that you want to share. I pray for tons of humility and courage as we engage this text together. We, we love you and we need you and we ask for your help. So Holy Spirit, speak now. Um, those unfamiliar with this passage, those who are very familiar with this passage, uh, would you speak, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity or the terrifying experience of like a three-year-old coming to you and asking where babies come from. And as a parent, you want to engage their questions. You want to let them know there's no bad questions. You want to look them in the eye and you want to honor that. And yet you know if you started talking too deeply about that, you're going to kind of blow their mind and it's going to raise a whole lot more questions, probably a lot of confusion. So you start with birds and bees, you start with flowers, you start with some seeds, and you can kind of see them still going like, no, no, I'm talking about human babies, not, not flowers or birds or, or seeds. And then, and then you realize, man, if I started to use medical terms, now this child doesn't know anything about cell division. They don't know about chromosomes. And so I'm going to have to introduce a whole lot of categories that they don't actually know to go down this medical road. And yet if I, if I started using like... Um, Parental words for certain parts that are maybe more acceptable or cute, but later on they're going to think they have no idea what my parents are talking about. Like my parents don't even know that what that's called medically. They call that a, a woohoo or something. And so I can't, I can't do that. And so I find myself in this space where this child has asked me a really important question. I want to engage them. And you wind up after all of that in a nanosecond just saying, well, mommy and daddy have a special hug. And when they hug, then the baby comes. And the kid goes, all right. That's it. That's all, that's all they needed. Have you had that experience? Anybody testify to those, those moments? And of course, as they get older, you want to share more. But, but I thought about that this week as I was thinking about this passage. I think if you are confused about how the entire cosmos ends, that's probably okay. If there's questions you have about how all of this would work out, how the sovereign God of the universe who created everything would transition us from this life to the next, how the new heavens and new earth are created, what happens in sequencing, where the tribulation and the rapture and where persecution, where all that fits in on a timeline. If that feels kind of confusing, I think that's probably okay and maybe even like to be expected. I mean, it was not that long ago that we all thought the earth was flat. And some people still think that. So we're, we're for pretty far behind on like, how do you understand all of what God has, has done? When we come to a passage like this, there is a temptation to talk as if we have more clarity than I think the text actually give us. Let me be really careful in this moment. I 
come from somewhere. Right? All of us have stories. All of us have histories together. I grew up in a spiritual community after I came to faith that had certainty about everything. Everything was black and white. And anybody who disagreed with us was wrong or foolish or ignorant or maybe even like an enemy. Even if they would call the name of Christ, if they didn't agree with our particular interpretation, it was really toxic. And so I, I went to grad school. I learned some more. I went to another kind of space where I got a really particular view of the end times. And, and I just have learned over the years, there's a temptation to put it all in line and answer all the questions. But if you put all the stuff on the table, you actually feel like a three-year-old going, I just don't know how this works out. There are some things that are super, super clear. There, there are special hugs in the scripture. We go, yep, that makes sense. I get it. I can put my hope in that. I can trust in that. But the reason why there are so many different views of how the end happens is because God talks about it in ways I think that are instructive to us to give us the main idea. But our desire for certainty, which maybe is rooted in a desire for control or, or just some sort of anxious need to kind of calm our hearts to know what will happen, that pushes us to create timelines and systems that sometimes when they get challenged, they don't hold. You have to remove some parts or de-emphasize some things or elevate some things to kind of make sense of all of it. Now, I'm speaking primarily to those of you who have some sort of faith background. If you're like, I've never read the Bible, dude, this is my first passage. Hey, I'm really sorry. There's like a lot that I'm skipping over. But essentially, Jesus is telling his disciples, because they ask and he loves them, how things are going to go down at the end of time. And we have an insatiable desire as 21st century Americans to put all of that into a way that we can control and hold and fully understand. But if you zoom out throughout history in different seasons, different denominations, different backgrounds, different brilliant scholars that believe the Bible is true and they reach different conclusions, that tips us off to a couple things. One, about the need for humility. The, the faith community I grew up in, I'm so thankful for so many things, but, but the way that we were so certain and therefore pushed away from those who disagreed with us, I don't think was very healthy. Maybe that marks some of your faith background. There was a crystal clear clarity, not just about who Jesus was and how we're saved, but about every minor doctrine. They had an answer that felt airtight until maybe you interacted with somebody else and had a different denominational experience or a different kind of background. I read all kinds of scholars this week and was fascinated to hear them like debate with each other about the loops in this guy's argument, the things that are strong about this guy's argument, and where this guy falls short, where this guy doesn't even acknowledge and recognize. So you have these brilliant people that have talked way more than me, who've studied way more than me, who are way smarter than me, who can't quite get on the same page. I simply am saying all that to say, I think that's instructive to us. And I think Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. When I encounter a text and I'm not quite sure what it means, I assume one of three things. Either there's some other passage I don't know that would help shed some light on that and then I could understand. Or there's something about the background or the history or the context that if I understood that, it would shed some background and some light and then I could understand. Or I don't need to fully understand. That God has designed us in such a way that we are always like three-year-olds who need to be receiving from God things that we can wrap our minds around. And the infinite God of the universe literally would melt your brain if he explained to you how everything works. So there are moments, again, which is not very American, it's not very modern, to just stop and yield and say, I don't have to fully understand that to be able to believe. 
I don't have to fully understand how one guy died on a cross to pay the penalty for all the sins of humanity, but if I put my hope in that, I can be reconciled and saved. There are lots of places in our faith where, where the essence of what we need to believe in is so, so clear, and then we have lots of questions around that that maybe the text doesn't intend to answer with the kind of clarity that we want, and that throws us into all kinds of uh, confusion. Okay, yes, I'm insecure about preaching this passage. Yes, there are places in this passage, I don't know. I just, I don't know. I've worked on it. I've prayed through it like for 25 years. I've been working through these themes and there's some places where I just can't quite fit all of it together. And I think rather than like that being a flaw, even though we're human and I have lots of flaws, all those things, I think it's actually by design. I think Jesus on purpose, because he could have made it as clear as he wanted to. There are times in Scripture where he uses parables to hide his teaching, and there's time where he just like in one sentence is crystal clear so there's no mistaking it. He could have said whatever he wanted to. I assume he knows we would struggle with some of this to kind of fit it all together and know when it's all happening. And he does that on purpose so that the main idea is where we settle our hearts. Did you just like feel it as you read it? There, there are things that are happening immediately that seem to be happening in the past and then stuff's supposed to happen in the next generation that seems to be in the future and you're just kind of getting a little bit confused. And scholars wonder, like, is this two things or three things or one thing or what all is he talking about? And I think Jesus knows that. I think he loves his disciples. They come to him with a question of what will the signs be for this? What should we be looking for? And what he actually focuses on is what they should be looking out for that they're going to struggle with as they face persecution, as they face uncertainty, as they hear different ideas about what it would mean to be related to God through, through false teachers. He has every opportunity to clear up whatever he wants in these two chapters that we're going to spend three weeks on. And instead of like airtight naming all of it, he seems to focus on things that they're going to struggle with. Did you just catch it? They ask, when will these things happen and what will the signs of these things be? And Jesus' answer in verse 4 is, see to it that no one leads you astray. You're like, well, that's not what I was asking. I was asking, what are the signs? He's like, yeah, I know you want signs. And, and I'll, I'll tell you some of them, but I'm more concerned about your faith. And that if you had the kind of clarity that you're wanting, it actually wouldn't satisfy to be focused on the details of the timeline rather than the one that the timeline is about would actually shift our faith in ways that we would get preoccupied. And I think the text clearly says would expose us to false teaching, would make us vulnerable to, to false Christs. People who said, I've got the answer. I've figured all of it out. I know things that you don't know. I know things outside of the Bible. Follow me. I will help you. And here's the deal. In moments of crisis, historically, people latch on to leaders that have certainty. So just think like not that long ago, World War II, what's happening in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s as, as Hitler is on the rise. Do you remember the history of World War I, how Germany was humiliated and bankrupt and struggling? Here comes this young, charismatic leader promising to restore Germany to its former glory and then that moves to its God's given glory and that moves to its racially driven glory and people are saying yes we want something to follow we're tired of being embarrassed we're tired of struggling we're tired of being bankrupt the economy is in the toilet we need something that will deliver us and rescue us sound a little familiar every November 
all these elections, right? There's something about us that looks always for something to latch on to. And Jesus knows that. All through this thing, he keeps cautioning them of like false teachers and false Christ. He does it more than one time in more than one section to cue to us, hey, there is an insatiable desire you have for certainty of details. I want to tell you about what these details are pointing to. Okay, you might feel like I'm sidestepping and maybe hiding the idea that I don't know what I'm talking about, but I already told you I don't know what I'm talking about. So I'm not hiding that at all. I'm upfront saying, where from Ezekiel or from Isaiah or from Thessalonians or from Corinthians or from Mark or from John or from Luke? What else is being referenced? Like we wind up in all these different places. Even the word like, do you take this literally? Do you mean literally like wooden literally? Or do you mean literarily like imagery? So when you see him coming on the clouds, do you anticipate a man on clouds or is that an image of the Old Testament apocalyptic language of deliverance? So, so there's these literal, literary interpretations, and there's this literal interpretation. Hey, that gets us in all kinds of places. Even the destruction of the temple. Some go, yep, that happened in AD 70. Some say, yep, that happened when Jesus died on the cross. Remember he said, he was the temple, tear this temple down, in three days I'm going to build it. He was so clear about the temple. The destruction of the temple clearly is about the cross and burial and resurrection. And some say, nope, the descriptions of what happens haven't taken place yet. We haven't yet seen the war to end all war. We haven't seen suffering like nobody else has ever experienced. There must still be a future temple. So we're waiting for Jerusalem to be its own space and Israel to be its own state and the temple to be rebuilt so it can be destroyed again. That, that's how they understand that to go. Are any of these sounding kind of familiar if you're familiar with the church? Like there are just so many themes throughout this thing. So I, again, have worked hard, came up short of the certainty that I think you want, but I'm really confident of where I think Jesus wants us to land and the encouragement he wants to give us. We're going to spend a couple of weeks in this text, so if you'll allow me this morning to focus primarily on what I think is his concern for his people as they come into the last days. As they come into suffering and persecution, as they come into this horrible war in 70 AD when the literal temple was literally destroyed and what that meant for God's people, I think he's preparing them for that space. Okay, so, so come back with me now into the text, Matthew 24. Verse 21, I'm sorry, verse 1 of 24 says, Jesus left the temple and was going away and the disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. It's almost like uh, they're going, hey, but that's pretty awesome, right? Like, I know you're like kind of frustrated with it, but like, this is a pretty amazing space. The other Gospels talk about the beauty of the stone, don't you? Say to you, there will not be one stone left upon another that will not be thrown down. This whole thing is going to be destroyed. And that for them would have been the center of how they understood their relationship with God, how they understood the corner of their society. It's hard for us in a transient community. You're willing to move for a job or for a relationship. You'll hop anytime you can. But for these people... Everything was about Jerusalem. Everything was about the temple. To say it would be destroyed would be the epicenter of their life and faith and economics and everything. So obviously their ears are perked up. He leaves there. He goes to the Mount of Olives in verse 3. So this is now called the Olivet Discourse. He gathers his disciples privately and they say, Hey, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Okay, scholars ask this question. Is this one question? In their minds, is the end of the temple the same as the coming of the end of the age? 
when the Messiah would actually return? Is that, is that one thing? Is it like your child asking, are we there yet? When are we going to get there? How much longer? You're like, that's all the same question. Those are not three different questions. Is it like that? Or are these actually three different questions? Or is it two different questions? Welcome to my whole week. This is my whole week engaging. And we're just on verse four in this space. Okay, what I think he actually is dealing with is maybe two things. He's going to talk about one idea of the pains that we experience until Christ comes back. And there's one big birth pain. There's one big moment where the the temple will be destroyed. What is marked as the abomination of desolation. Which now you realize why last week, for two reasons, I want to talk about Revelation 21. One, I didn't want to do the abomination of desolation on Mother's Day. That's one of them. The other one is I wanted to root you in a larger why of why Jesus is saying this. I'm only on verse 4 and already you have no idea what I'm talking about. Which again, welcome to my study all all week long. There's a need for us to continue to say, okay, what is the why? Why is he saying this? Where is all this going? What's the purpose of all this? So I don't get lost in the details or frustrated in the details. The why of what he's saying is that God is going to come back and restore everything. There will be no more sadness, no more crying, no more weeping, no more mourning, no more loss, no more death, no more sin, no more pain. That's where all of this is going. So when they ask, hey, when is this going to happen? It's, it's a hopeful question, but they also realize it's going to come with some judgment. It's going to come as God reconciles all of humanity to himself. And he sits as judge, making those who have been rebellious and disobedient and hurt other people pay for that. Those who refuse to let him pay, they will pay They know it's going to be costly in that space. And they're asking, man, when is this going to take place? And then they ask for a sign. They want to know what will be the sign of your coming. And in an interesting way, and I don't know if you caught it, he's going to talk about the destruction of the temple and he's going to talk about the return of Christ. Again, some people think that's the same event. They're going to happen at the same time. Some think they happen millennium apart. Some think they happen seven years apart. There's different interpretations depending on what Old Testament passages you kind of read as the decoder for this text. But essentially, he's going to answer two questions. He's going to answer what two ways. And what's fascinating is what he says is, you're going to know the sign of it will be that it actually happens. How will you know? What will the signs be? It's when it happens. So look in verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand what Daniel is talking about. You're like, okay, that's a whole other sermon. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains because it's happening. When will it happen? It's going to happen when you see the person in the temple making some sort of sacrifice, desecrating the temple. When you see an abomination in God's temple, that's when you know it's happening. And when will Christ return? Come to verse 27. It's going to be like lightning that comes across the sky from the east and the west. It shines as far as you can see. This will be the coming of the Son of Man. You you won't be able to miss it. How will you know? You'll know when it happens. Now, there are people who at this point are going, hey, dude, that's not helpful. There's actually lots of signs and lots of examples. But the problem is they don't fit neatly on a timeline. What Jesus is doing, I think, is instructive to us. The reason why there's so much confusion among scholars is because I think on purpose Jesus is saying, hey, you're going to know when it happens. I don't need you reading the paper every morning wondering if today is the day. Because embedded in this text is the idea that that posture opens you up to all kinds of suffering and pain and disillusionment. It actually erodes your ability to endure. It makes you engage 
persecution with kind of one eye open and one eye shut, confused about what's happening. Because if you thought in your idea that you're going to skip all of that and now you're suffering, you're wondering what's wrong with you, what's wrong with God, and you're open to false teaching. Do you understand how that works? A too tight of an explanation of everything when it doesn't happen exactly the way you thought exposes you to different ideas and different teachings. So, so Jesus just kind of happens to say, it's like a fig tree. I mean, when the leaves are there, that's how you know. You're just going to know when it happens. And I think that he must know something about their question, something behind their question, something rooted in control that helps them kind of be exposed in the way that he walks through these two chapters to say, actually, I want to tell you some of the what and some of the when, but I want to talk a whole lot more about the why and the who and the how you should live. What he's focusing on in these text is what do you do in the last days? What do you do when the center of your world collapses? What do you do when everything you thought it meant for you to be rightly related to God, all the blessings, all the relationships, all the stuff, when all that folds in on itself, what do you do in that space? What do you do when you're in relationships and people turn against you? Did you catch that? Hey, in the last days, like people's hearts are going to grow cold because of lawlessness. There'll be people who, who turn on each other. Close relationships are going to fall apart. What do you do when your closest relationships, the people that you were with in the war and the battle, now they no longer believe? What do you do in that space? Enter in all of the frustrations and questions, all of the de-churching, all of the deconstruction. What if some of the struggle we have is that we had too particular, too detailed of a timeline or expectation? And rather than it being focused on the one who this whole thing is about, we got sidetracked and started focusing on the blessings or the teachings or the details. And when those things didn't happen exactly the way we thought, when we were quoting a verse in our prayers and the person still died, when you asked for wisdom for a job and the job never came, when you begged God for a child and you had read in the Old Testament about God opening up wombs and you believed it was going to happen and yet there still is no baby, what do you do in those spaces? I think those are similar to what it would mean for them for the temple to fall apart and collapse. When the center of everything they thought folds in on itself and Jesus simply wants to say, hey, I want to show you and comfort you. I want to give you enough information so that you know where things are going so you can have some sort of confidence in who I am. But I don't want you focused on the signs because it will misdirect your focus in a way that I think will actually lead you astray. Did you catch that? Did you catch all the warnings in here? So, so if the what question is, what are the signs? I think he just says, when it happens, that's the sign. And, and we see history in AD 70. There was this horrific abomination of desolation where, where Rome surrounded Jerusalem and starved it out. Historian Josephus tells us horrific things of, of cannibalism and people eating their own feces, like starving to death for years. And you see actually in that space, then Rome moves into the temple totally desecrates it, and then destroys it. So, so there is a, a near fulfillment of this. Prophecy often has like a very near fulfillment, and it's almost like a mountain range where you can look over the mountains and go, man, there's more still to come. From, from western Kansas, when you're driving to Colorado, you can just kind of see a mountain, just kind of one hazy mountain. Then you get up there and you're like, oh my gosh, the Rockies are vast and immense. They keep going for a long, long, long time. So, so the near fulfillment of when will this happen? Happened in AD 70. And Jesus, as a good shepherd, wants them to know, hey, when this thing goes down, you should run. 
Like, don't stick around. You should get out of there as fast as you can. As a good shepherd, loving his people, because this thing is going to be horrible, he wants to take care of them. He wants to protect them. He says, you should run. Don't go back. Don't grab stuff. Just keep moving. Now, some see this as a sign of, of the rapture, but if it was simply the desolation of the temple in AD 70, what happened historically is people did run. And those who ran were, were spared. And so, so he's actually loving them to say, Go and run. That near sign of the painful things are going to happen. I'm telling you, it's going to come crashing down. When it comes crashing down, run. And the same way as a far fulfillment, when the Son of Man comes, everything you put your hope in apart from Him will come crashing down. So, so turn to Him. Repent. Move, move His direction would be a way to talk about that. I'll come back next week and kind of give you some more details because we'll start in verse 36 where He starts to talk about some of the when when will these things take place? And it's, it's much fewer verses. We'll get a chance to slow down just a second there. But I want you to see as we close five things that Jesus wants them to see, of what, he, what he wants them to look out for, what he wants them to be on guard for, what he wants them to actually notice, what he wants them to pay attention to when it comes to these things of the end times. Because he'll say later on, like, hey, I want you to stay awake. Therefore, after all these things, stay awake. Have your eyes open. Move towards like who I am and what your confidence is inside of me. Do, do that as you struggle with the end times. I'm not trying to sidestep like the detailed questions that you have, but I'm trying to follow Jesus' lead. If he doesn't give them a detailed timeline, but instead warns them, that's where I want to spend our time. So, so first he says, hey, I want to tell you in verses 4 and 5, like it's going to be bad for a long time. Part of the human existence is that things are really difficult. So he says in verse 4, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name and say, I'm the Christ, and they will lead many astray. They're going to promise you a way out of the pain and the suffering and the details of your life, and actually it won't be something that helps you. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. These things that press in, that create catastrophes, that make you long for some sort of answers. See that you are not alarmed. This must all take place, but the end is not yet. What's the sign? Everything's going to be so hard for so long, but that's not the end, he says. And because it's so hard for so long, be careful that you're not led astray by people saying, I can rescue you. I have what you need. He's promising in that space a warning about these false teachers that, that would say to you, hey, maybe God's word isn't that clear, that reliable, that you don't have to actually hold on to that. The pressure you feel at your job to stand and testify about Jesus Hey, what if you don't actually have to do that? What if there's more than one way to get to heaven? What, what if there's multiple destinations? What, what if there's lots of reasons why God would let someone into his kingdom? Those kinds of false teachings, when you're facing suffering, you are susceptible to. I think he's saying, hey, when you hear wars and rumors of wars, would you just understand that is life in the fallen and broken world? It's not evidence that I've abandoned you. It's not evidence that it's not working. This is what life is, this side of Eden. That's not the end. But hearing that you have to go through that does something inside of you to give you some sort of stamina and perseverance when you hear false teachers promise you an easy way out. False teachers never appear with clarity saying, this is an abomination. This is a rejection of God's word. This is going to damn your soul. Would you like it? They never do that. It's always a small twist. It's always a small uh, yield. It's always some sort of change to God's original design. Did God really say you can't? eat or touch that tree? Uh, I, don't, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what to do with that. In those spaces now, 
he's saying when you're feeling stress, when you're overwhelmed, right, these things would cause lots of needs of your soul. When we feel needs, we look to something to actually fill them. So he says, I want you to be warned not to be led astray by people that promise you some way of salvation apart from God's saving grace in Christ alone. And he just simply says, hey, expect these groanings are going to continue. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are but the beginning of the birth pains. They're not the end. They're just things that happen in this world. Remember in Romans that all of creation is groaning, longing for redemption. He's saying expect that everything will be difficult. And if you do, you won't get preoccupied with with details or um, promises that actually might lead you astray. Hey, expect that life is going to be hard, he says. Verse 9, he says, expect persecution. We were told if we trust Jesus, everything gets better. But the Bible continually says when we trust Jesus, we lose everything. You have to die to yourself. People will turn against you. And if you're not ready for that, when it happens, you're going to think that God ripped you off. You're going to think you bought a certain car with certain options and they're not there. And you're going to feel like God frustrated you. It's not a car. It's your very salvation. It's actually your hope. And in this war of the world, there is an enemy who wants to still kill and destroy. And Jesus says, hey, there will be temptation and tribulation and there will be suffering. Verse 9, and they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of lawlessness, because, because people are turning away, because there's, there's no mercy in the land, because that increases, the love of many is going to grow cold. This love that meant to be outward focused now will turn into be self-protective. If you can understand that there will be persecutions, he warns against apostasy about falling away. Again, false teachers that would come in and promise you an easier, simpler, more socially acceptable way of following God. A way that wasn't quite so extreme, a way that wasn't quite, quite so standoutish, a way that was more acceptable to your friends and neighbors, a way that didn't cause ruffles in our community, a way that didn't say to somebody the path that they're going down is actually going to lead to their own destruction. I promise you some sort of hybrid gospel. And in that space, you'll be tempted to take it. And that will threaten some sort of apostasy. He's saying when you're feeling the squeeze, you're going to be tempted to look for something other than Jesus to trust. We come down into verse 14. He says, as he's engaging his people, let me kind of try to wrap fast for the sake of our kids' ministry. He says in this space that there will be a promise that I want you to hear. Right? There's, he says there's going to be suffering, there's going to be persecution, lots fall away. But hear the good news that Jesus is trustworthy. That what he says you can put your hope in. In verse 14 he says, And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Some see this here a call for global missions, which I think is really beautiful. The question is, is that the whole known world of the time? Is it the whole globe now? Like, what is the, the whole world? And I think it's just like, please tell the gospel. The gospel will spread throughout the globe. You can trust the king who came to bring his kingdom is going to fulfill his promises, he says. As you suffer, as you face persecution, as there's famine, as there's wars, as there's false teaching, as there's apostasy, as people turn away, you can trust that God will keep his promise to advance his kingdom. You can trust that. And then finally, you're not going to miss it. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be pain. There's going to be false teachers. 
you can trust Jesus and verse 27 and 28. He just wants to say, hey, don't worry about missing this. When I come, I'm going to come. And you don't have to go out to the, the highways. You don't have to go to the hills. You don't have to go into secret rooms. Don't go looking for me in obscure places. I'm going to appear like lightning across the sky, which is a way of saying you can't miss it in verse 27. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather, which is pretty ominous. But he's saying when you see those swarming, you know there's something down there. There's clear signs that you won't be able to miss in that franticness because false teachers promise that you missed it. And they know it. You got off track, but they're the ones who have the secrets. And if you just follow their secrets, that'll be the way towards salvation. He's saying, no, hey, you're not going to miss it. There'll be false Christ that promise you a way apart from me, but I'll come back and you won't be able to miss it, which would be such good news amidst pain and suffering and persecution. He's telling his people the, this life from when he is there in this first coming till he comes again is going to be marked with suffering and pain and persecution. Look out for that. What should we be looking for? Look out for what happens to your soul as you suffer and face persecution and keep moving towards Jesus keep moving towards him because he's the one who's trustworthy and true look in verse 34 he says truly I say to you this generation will not pass away until all these things take place which is super mysterious is that the generation that he's speaking to now is that a kind of people is that an ethnic group is that all the generations of the world I don't know I don't know I don't know scholars have lots of opinions there but what I do know is that heaven and earth will pass away but Christ's words will not pass away. Amidst all the things that are confusing, all the things that scholars can't agree on, he lands the plane here that you can trust his words. And his word was, I'm going to be with you to the very end of the age. I'm going to be with you to the very, very end of the age. Hey, friends, I, I, I wanted to encourage you, actually. My heart was to encourage you. With, with the way he frames this thing for his followers, not, not answering their questions, but answering it deeper and more richly and more fully than they anticipated so that their hearts were cautioned about drifting, not just getting the details right. It raises a question for us of what are we hoping in? And this morning you get a chance to ask, am I looking for certainty or am I putting my hope in someone who died in my place? And I don't think that's a false choice. I think it's something about our hearts that needs to be drawn back to Jesus. If he is true, if his words won't pass away, then we'll make it through whatever happens, even if it's different than what we expected. And God has given us enough to know he's good and we can follow him. Which is why we take communion every week is to remind ourselves of what he has done, how he made these things possible, how he put a deposit on healing and redeeming and saving and remaking the entire world. It happened in his broken body and his shed blood. With all of our swirling questions about how the thing ends, to just hear, hey, there's a God who died. What's the sign you should look for? You should look at the cross. Jesus died in your place to make a way for you to be made right with God. That's the thing you should put your hope in and you should put your, your longings in. That's the thing that will sustain you in this life and in the next. Would you bow your head with me? We're going to take communion. It's for those who follow Jesus, who are trusting in him. Not trusting a timeline or trusting prophecies, but trusting what Jesus did on the cross. And those don't have to be opposite things. They don't have to be two um, opposing things. But it clarifies for us what our faith is in. We take communion to say it's his broken body and his shed blood. It's for all Christians who are trusting in Jesus for their righteousness. 
What we take communion is we come down the aisle, we take a piece of the bread off and dip it in the cup. There's gluten-free in the middle, and then all the aisles have stations. If you're not a follower of Jesus, stay in your seat and pray. What Jesus warns about here is judgment that comes to those who don't know him. Judgment that comes to those who look to something other than him. Those other Christs or false teachings or messiahs that you put your hope in that actually haven't died in your place can't rescue and save you. They can't solve the biggest problem. And so you get a chance this morning just to pray. Ask for God's help. There's some prayers in the back of your bulletin that would guide you and what it would sound like to talk to God and ask for his help. But would you do that this morning if you're not a follower of Jesus? And if you are a follower of Christ, I invite you to come and take communion. Let me just pray for us. Jesus, we ask now that you would meet us, help us. Uh, some things are more clear. Some things are way less clear. So would you be the clearest thing in the room right now? Your sacrifice on the cross, would it be a, a gravitational reorientation for us to help us engage with who you are and what you promise and what that promise means for us to be sustained through the last days and into the next life? Fill the room with joy, even with a sobriety of our minds. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Come take communion, then we'll sing.